Welcome to Her Deepest Ecologies, the podcast. I am your host, Jessica Gigo. We are at a turning point on this planet and in this country. In conversation with a wide range of artists, makers, creators, and caretakers, this podcast takes on two fundamental and interconnected questions. How do we care for ourselves and each other? How do we nurture the earth? Let's find out what these luminaries have to say. Welcome to Season 1, Episode 3 of Her Deepest Ecologies. I appreciate everyone that's been listening and following along. This conversation was very special because I got to talk to a friend of mine, Jody Buller. And full disclosure, we used to have a radio show together called Skagit by Hand for KSVR here at Skagit Valley College. But we were talking about her work um, in Goldendale. She splits her time west of the mountains in Skagit Valley and then east of the mountains in Goldendale at Econi Ranch, which is also the home of White Eagle Memorial Preserve, which is a natural burial ground. And Jody is the cemetery director there. And I loosely know the work that she does there. I think I visited in 2014, but this conversation really gave us a chance to kind of go deep, literally into the ground, um, but also go deep into her work there not only managing the physical landscape, but also working with the families and individuals who have chosen a natural uh, burial. And uh, it's important work, and it involves a really deep appreciation for grief. Um, And I I learned a lot in this conversation. And also, uh, it really made me think a lot about um, my own uh, and and what I might want to do and and how do we make those choices and how do we think about that and and what is what is ceremony what it, what type of passage feels right so I left with a lot of questions but I also left with uh, a deeper understanding of options um, in this sort of death grief work and uh, I hope this is helpful to you too, because I think there's a lot of great information here. And as with all the episodes, I've included some links in the bottom uh, of the Substack page, um, so you can learn more um, about not only uh, Oconee Ranch and the White Eagle Memorial Preserve, but also the Conservation Burial Alliance and other resources that sort of help people and support people in, in making these decisions. So, enjoy. Uh, and thank you. Econi is the place name uh, for uh, land in south central Washington down by the Columbia River, um, just east of Goldendale. And it began as an experiment, I think, a back to the land sort of attempt in the 70s um, and evolved over the years uh, to feature. Um, I think of a variety of ways the ways to make make a living and and be stewarding the land. Um, so they started running summer camps for kids in the eighties and became a Washington State nonprofit called Sacred Earth Foundation, and uh, then expanded to run other kind of land based programs and 
really developed a wider community net. Um, and then when the founder of the place died fairly suddenly in 2007, um, that became an impetus to start a conservation burial ground. That was something he had been an early adapter on many fronts, and um, and they'd talked about that. So they were uh, at that point, um, stewarding about a thousand acres of land from the initial 165 acres in the Coney Ranch Valley, and and were able to designate 20 of those acres to be a cemetery, a, a forest cemetery. Really, uh, it's ponderosa pine and Gary oak, and kind of a shrub sh- shrub step landscape um, along Rock Creek Canyon. And uh, continuing to run summer camps and other land-based programs kind of alongside this this cemetery work, which I have been now a part of for coming on about 10 years since 2013. So, yeah, it's it's, um, kind of a full-spectrum place and... um, and caring for people and plants and animals and and um, kind of living uh, living in attendance in attention to the land is really one of the main main principles guiding principles behind the. It's now a five hundred one c three organization and um, and has been doing some work uh, looking at firewise forestry and and looking into prescribed burning, which that landscape really. Uh, has historically and traditionally with the indigenous peoples there, the Kamilpa tribe Rock Creek Band, which is part of Yakima Nation. Um, that that land was was their traditional uh, foraging lands, and um, and they would have definitely been been burning some of that oak uh, habitat. Oak really responds well to fire. So as we are sort of looking into the future, we're looking at how to. Uh, be on this land in a in a way that the land needs, I guess. I love that. Be on the land in the way that the nan- land needs. Yeah. So there's a lot of listening embedded in that. There is, yeah. I think that's one of the great gifts of that place and the opportunity to do uh, small group programs and, and larger group programs is um, offering people just the chance to go be out on the land and in a listening space and in a... Um, where they can hear both more deeply into the ecology, but also more deeply into themselves. There's mm-hmm. that that real uh, tender offering. And the, does the the foundation still owns the land, and then the nonprofit op- operates all their programs. Is that? Yeah, the Sacred Earth Foundation is a nonprofit. So oh, okay. we are we w- we would identify as a land stewardship organization. Oh, okay. Um I don't know about primarily, but that's definitely one of one of the primary tenants and then mm. um offering place-based education and mm. um and then with the cemetery work offering uh families and communities we would call family and community-led death care. So one of the one of the tenants of natural burial, um, and I can get more into all of the particulars of what that world is, aside from no embalming and you know being being um, buried just directly in in the earth in a shroud or in a plain sort of pine casket, um, is the opportunity for families to really uh, engage and not just witness professionals taking, you know, laying their loved one to rest, but to actually do that work themselves often. So to act as pallbearers and to help with the closing of the grave. And uh, we we often have families driving their loved ones out in their own vehicles and really kind of 
taking taking the lead and doing doing that work, which is kind of ancestral work in some ways. It feels like I feel like there's a deep a deep human duty that is kind of hard to articulate or put words around, but people really recognize it once they're they recognize that need to be both be of use and that this may be a hard, you know, it's hard work, but it, it's it, there's something in that grieving process that needs that sometimes. Yeah, my my first reaction is like, yeah, that's very beautiful for those families, but like, is that even legal? To- <laughs> I'm curious about that, like yeah. transporting someone's loved one. Like, do you need a permit for that? Or I'm just cu- you, so curious. You know, in the way of our uh, industrialized culture, a lot of a lot of these tasks became professionalized in the last fifty to seventy-five years. Uh, but it is very legal to uh, take care of your loved one before they die, as they're dying, after they die. Um, they're uh, the the term home funeral has been used for for many years of of keeping keeping a loved one in in the home and keeping their body cool and preparing their body for burial and then um, you need a you need a one page uh, permit if you will from the county clerk's office uh, but that is something yeah that we can do we can do for each other. Um, it can be really helpful to have a funeral director, you know, who has the permit software on their computer take care of certain of those pieces. But you can go and pick your loved one up from a funeral home and bring them, bring them out to a cemetery if that feels good to you. If that feels like a need, and you know, someone with a minivan or a truck or a Subaru for that matter. Wow. Yeah. And the county clerk, is that a death certificate that they issue? Is that you need that to bring is? a death certificate into the county clerk's office, and then they issue – it's called a, a disposition authorization in Washington. Um, each state has a different name for it or a burial transit permit. It just accompanies the body, and then I take that form and sign it and say, yes, we did bury this person and send it back to the county. Hmm. I think it's just so – not just so. It's – uh, it's not legal to bury your loved one in the, in your backyard, at least in Washington State. Okay, um, so or any yard for that matter. Really, yeah, or okay. or any yard. It needs to be in a cemetery. Uh, okay, so you have to have, and you guys have the designation as is it a nat- is it called a natural cemetery or natural burial ground or what is the. Uh, yeah, for state purposes, we are a cemetery. I mean, that's that was the. Uh, that was the legal process that we went through. Um, and then we identify as forest cemetery, natural burial ground. Um, there is a sort of a three-tier certification process nationally through the Green Burial Council, which is a certifying body for funeral homes and for cemeteries um, that looks at hybrid burial grounds, which may be conventional or pioneer cemeteries that will bury people without embalming or without concrete vaults. Um, And then natural burial grounds are often uh, conventional cemeteries that have designated kind of a, a natural area. And so you'll see instead of the flat uh, green lawn. You'll see grave mounds. That's one of the things you'll notice with a with natural burial is that we're 
digging up we're we're digging a grave and then uh, making a burial mound because that ground is going to settle over time. And then there's what's called conservation cemeteries, and those are often operating either in conjunction with a land trust, um, or in our case, because we were already a land stewardship organization, we could uh, do some deed restrictions on the land to, set, to ensure that this land was going to be uh, conserved in perpetuity. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the conservation cemeteries, and there aren't very many of them in, in the States, I'd say there are probably 15 at this point. Um, plenty more natural burial grounds and or cemeteries that will bury you um, in a green fashion. But conservation can be a really good way to steward and protect land that would already be kind of in in threat of progress and development. Um, so that's where the kind of partnership with land trust comes comes into play. And then natural burial being kind of a a revenue stream, if you will, to to help fund further conservation efforts. That is so interesting, that connection with land trusts is something I haven't thought about. Because once something is designated a cemetery, I mean, you're not going to go back and ever build anything on it. I mean, has that ever happened in the U.S.? Have they? It has definitely happened in cities where, I mean, most of our major cities have run out of ground for cemeteries. And that's where some of the... Um, Disposition, alternative disposition is what we would call it. So, um, uh, natural organic reduction, like the the human composting, has become a kind of a fascinating new option in Washington State and in Colorado. Multiple states have legislation underway right now to to allow for that uh, method of disposition, um, and in part driven because there's not any room in cities. And I think many cities have a if you go back enough in history, a time when uh, bodies were disinterred and moved to other places because that that land became valuable. Um, so yeah, it it has happened. It's it's theoretically cemetery distinction protects against that, but conservation easements and um, other strategies and tools can help really proactively protect land that may be maybe uh, kind of in in the way of development as hmm. time goes on. Gosh, I didn't even I didn't even think about that. I mean, and it, but it, there hasn't, like if something is a cemetery, it can never really be sold for anything else. That's the idea. Yeah. yeah. That's wow. the idea. Yeah. Yeah, even if, yeah, regardless of the way of burial, which obviously the way you're doing it would lead to quicker... Return Recomposition, to the earth. yeah, yeah. decomposition. <laughs> these are these are the ideas, and part yeah. of what we're doing is like laying, uh, we call it duff or bio biomass. Um, the in our case, it's oak leaves and pine needles down at the base of a grave, and then as the layer on top of the burial vessel, whether it be a shroud or a casket or a quilt, really even, um, and that being where all the mycelium is, you know, is is working already and kind of a, a starter kit, if you will, to help to help the uh, the the form return to soil. Oh. So similar to a more proactive human like the com- the composting or the natural organic reduction, but um, taking place in the ground and not in a tube in a in a building. In the building. I didn't I actually didn't realize the Human composting was a thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Seattle is sort of an epicenter. It's, it's the beginning wow. of, of this. Um, there's a woman named Katrina Spade. Her business is called Recompose. And they introduced legislation uh, 
in uh, 2019, maybe, um, to make that a legal form of, of body disposition. Mm. Yeah, and it's about- really caught on and. Well, that happens on farm. I mean, you know, there's a mortality composting, I guess Mm -hmm. is how they refer to it, um, in livestock operations, you know, which I haven't, you know, experienced firsthand. But, I mean, it makes sense. I think there's Mm -hmm. just, there's so many, like, spiritual and, I mean, obviously ecological, but, um, you know, technical questions, too, of what actually works because composting can be hot and cold and you know how you know what temperatures do you need to generate and how often do you turn the piles and Mm -hmm. where is this happening in Seattle do you know is it Uh, I believe in the southern part of Seattle is there's there's a facility that that they built and it's got a you know there's a waiting room area and a place for families to kind of do do some ceremony and and those things so yeah, it's a fa- it's a fascinating option, and it's um, it's really I think helping to break open some paradigms that we may have boxes around when it comes to to death and to dying, um, and and I'm glad of it for people in urban areas, um, and I'm very partial to the wilderness um, mm-hmm. and what that experience is for people to be out in out in and on the land um, and engaged in the grieving and saying, you know, the laying to rest um, in a space where there are ravens calling and, and you know, wind in the pines and those sorts of things. I think there's a real balm mm. to that experience. Again, that's kind of hard to put words around, but yeah, it's well, a very somatically um, grounding, maybe. Yeah, well, I'm just having visited Ikoni one time, I know it's just pretty stunning there and open and I can see how that would be quite a journey to go there and mm-hmm. and have a ceremony um, and leave a loved one there and feel you know as good as you can about losing that person mm-hmm. yeah there's the peace of wild places I think is yeah. really that is really at play in that work the word ceremony is interesting to me and I'm curious about your role because you are you know obviously having to handle a lot of the legality and logistics and all the things that go into running a nonprofit organization, mm-hmm. um, you know, in your role there. And then how are, involved are you in the actual ceremonies or, and, and what is that relationship with the families like? I know you probably can't share specific details, but I'm just curious what that experience has been like for you. Yeah, I think it is all along a full spectrum. On the one hand, I'm very much... Um, I would I would define my primary role as that of holding space, um, and that's both when someone is calling, we'd call it at need, you know, so someone has died or is about to die, and they've maybe heard about this or they found us late night on the internet, <laughs> you know, search, um, and they're in a real tender, and you know that that fresh grieving space is such a liminal space. It's so kind of um kind of in this world but but blasted wide open in the emotional realm um which is not necessarily a place f- for logistics brain um grief and logistics are not as sort of I'll talk about this with with regard to like pre-planning things because it can be so challenging to try to figure out logistics when you're in a real raw grief place but um, from that initial kind of conversation forward, just holding 
I had I identify my role as holding space to step by step walk people through what this process is. And some of that does involve like identifying whether they have a friend or family member who feels comfortable um, kind of leading people through any any sort of graveside um, process. Uh, if there's a clergy member in in their world um, or if they need me to to be in that space and so that's something that I do not all the time but but occasionally to semi-often um, and then there's the kind of just gentle suggesting of like you did did their loved person uh identify strongly with words or poems or music or like just kind of feeding ideas because this is outside of then the like uh, the frame if you will of like what a traditional church graveside service would be where you are you know kind of following a particular formula um, for the order of what happens like I feel like our our burial experiences are very much um, responsive to the person who we're burying. And some of them are really funny and turn into, like, joke sessions. You know, if the person loved dad jokes, it's like everybody bring a dad joke. Um, uh, one of our more recent burials uh, was for a musician, and so there were two to three people with guitars there, and... They were singing his songs as they walked his casket down to the grave place, and it was really important for them to actually walk that, walk that distance, and and be in song together. Um, it's it's such a like I don't know if it's a gift of permission or something. Like when when we look at ceremony from a sociological view you can kind of you know what are these shared elements that that show up in different religious traditions or in different cultures um, and and empowering people to do that work themselves like often they just need a little they need to know that other people have done it and that whatever they do is going to be lovely and I just sort of again during a burial service and am there to hold the frame and um, to uh, introduce possibilities as we go um, and also to again help with the logistics and the you know really encouraging family to act as the pallbearers and to help with the lowering because we're doing hand lowering we we prepare the grave places by hand as well and sometimes families come out to help with that Mm. Uh, but more often they're helping with the closing and so it's just like really without going too far into any particular you know call it forest stuff I'm not going to go into biomass and how mycelium (laughs) are working at that moment because that's not that's not what that moment is about but really gathering up handfuls of duff and offering it and then you know you can you don't have to just grab from this pile that I've prepared. You can go into the forest and and grab, like grab, find your own handfuls of duff. Or, um, and also encouraging people to make beauty. And this has been one of the um, primary 
part works for me with this is um, gathering materials from the forest, whether that's lichen and pine cones and stones and twigs, um, or from the garden during uh, during the blooming months um, to make make beauty down at the base of the grave and around the sides of the grave, and so that when families approach their um, they're not bracing themselves to look at a hole in the earth. Their their eyes are resting on this like this practice, and then really encouraging them once we've made a closed the grave and made a grave mound to to make their own beauty to arrange you know hmm. to arrange the rocks in a ring around the mound or pine cones or to you know any flowers that they've brought just to spend that time with their hands. In in the earth, on the earth, um, I don't know. There's an attentiveness to that that um, that does feel very nurturing. That feels like nurturing to the, each of the hearts that are doing this hard work, um, but also to the to the memory of the person that they're saying good good saying goodbye to. Doesn't feel like the right phrase here, but that that they are. Um, laying in the earth in that way. Yeah, that's interesting because they're, you know, I just have this perception that there are a lot of rules and rules of separation of like, this goes there and we go here and this person does this. And, you know, so it is more of a, a saying goodbye. It's not a, you know, actively helping someone cross over or letting that person go in an active way. It's really, it's very powerful. Do you tend to have, is it smaller groups? Is that a policy or do you, like, you don't host, like, a, uh, any we, event with the burial? Is it just the burial that people the do? The burial, yeah. yeah, because of our location, because we are two and a half hours from Portland, mm. four hours from Seattle, tends to be on the eight to 15 people coming for a burial service and then a larger memorial service happening, you know, with the slideshow and, mm. and different things like that in a you know, closer, closer to home. And, and because there is not the urgency that, that people wonder about with natural burial, it's not, it, we don't have to bury somebody so quickly. Um, if they're not embalmed, like if they can be held in shelter in a funeral home for weeks, but there is enough of that kind of uh, in the flow timing that um, it can take time to figure out. You know, again, back to logistics, like what kind of food and what are you know. It, so so often a larger memorial service will happen later. Um, we have hosted. Up to seventy-five people for burials, um, but but parking becomes then the tricky <laughs> logistics the are tr- always logistics. a thing. Aren't they? It is it is itself an <laughs> yeah. event, yeah. But it seems like what the experience that you are able to facilitate are just they're very intimate, very just both intimate. with the earth and also with the person mm-hmm. that's being buried. Mm-hmm. Very much so, yeah. The, and I I feel like that is part of the potency of it because people are not going into uh, that sort of like sterile facility space for uh, for the service. The, um, the campus, if you will, at Econi is um, 
definitely shows its 1970s back to the land roots and everything is very unique and there are you know 15 horses and chickens and dogs and like there's life happening in the valley and then we get out into the forest and there's life happening out there too um and and i i feel like that allows people to be present in a more intimate way because they're they're not engaging with an institution in really any shape or form this is and it's and it's very personal i'm 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 keeping track of grave places on a first name basis mm. you know um and each of these burials is made an impression on me that then whether I ever actually met that person in life or not, I know them to some degree. And getting to know their family as they come visiting afterwards or um, the folks, the founding stewards, there were five people who helped found the cemetery in the wake of, wake of Ray Mitchell's death. He was the founder of Econian. And uh, they talk about building an afterlife community. And hmm. it's... I'm not a huge fan of catchphrases one way or the other, but it does feel to some degree like that's what we're what's what we're able to do. Um, we have a annual gathering sort of the beginning of November every year in, in memoriam where we just do some work on the land in the morning and enjoy soup together around a fire and then have some time for a little bit of just kind of naming who we're thinking of, who we're present in in remembrance with and um, I'll read a list of who we've buried this year and and then folks have some time to be out on the land and um, and people will come and visit their loved ones all throughout the year but that has become a really sweet time of gathering and and people who are in shared relationship to that particular land and to Econian Sacred Earth Foundation in mm. this in this particular way. So sometimes th- it's strangers coming back that mm-hmm. are Yep and getting and oh, then wow. like pulling bitter brush or, you know, working on, on land projects together and getting to know each other and um and there's a real shared resonance there, which is hmm. which feels like community building. Yeah, especially the, you know, responsibility to help maintain and not letting that just be kind of a depository, I guess. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. Well, it's a living place, and and I th- it is a living place. And the part of the process with uh, with grave mounds, as they kind of in the in the first few years, is that there's subsidence, and so I'm I'm attending to and I'm tending these graves, kind of in a seasonal cycle. I'll go out after the snow has melted and kind of check on everybody and see how see how the earth is settling and if we need to pull back some topsoil and remound or um, otherwise tend. We, we have a native wildflower mix that we'll add to some of the burials if the family feels like that would be a nice part of the service. Just kind of water in some seeds with a teapot and then, you know, go and go and check them and and in and in part, you know, there's there's weeding to be done also because these are like little disturbance zones in mm-hmm. in a forest. So there's a there's a real tending cycle that happens in the in the spring and then in the fall. Kind of go and 
mulch everybody in and tuck 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 the grave mounds in for the winter time and wow yeah because you want to keep that you don't want any vegetation to grow in over the spaces we love when wildflowers wow. pop up you know there's yarrow and lupin and balsam root um, but the west is plagued by cheatgrass and some other real kind of, of invasive weeds, invasive yeah. weeds so we're, we're watching for that and and uh I'll do some, like, yarrow's a pretty good fender offer of cheatgrass, so I'll go and, like, shake the yarrow seeds (laughs) in the fall. Like, come on, you guys. I love that. Yeah. I feel like that should be, like, a line in a song, like, plant yarrow seeds on my grave. I'll have to write that one down for (laughs) a good country song. I guess just for me, this, like, the word permission keeps coming up. Like, you know, like, who gives you permission to have this connection with the earth? Who gives you permission to have this type of ceremony with your loved one? Like, and I'm, I don't know, how does that, I mean, it's not that you're necessarily giving permission, but the, this whole space, this whole idea of a natural burial ground is just, it is a paradigm shift of, I guess, being in more of a relationship with that whole process and death in general, or there's an acceptance of death. And I don't know how often people block out spaces or reserve spaces for you guys. But anyway, I'm just curious about that. You know, it's a it's a really interesting thing to deepen an inquiry into, this idea of permission, because I think culturally on so many fronts we've We've compartmentalized and we've made rules and guidelines and, you know, and we've professionalized um, pretty much everything at this point. Uh, but when it comes to death and, and dying, um, those are like uh, – those are core home, familial, community, like um, – relationships really and in being in relationship with death and dying in general um, can be very scary and can be kind of tricky it can also just be very beautiful um, and I think one of the just sort of implicit things about wilderness and land and then explicitly about an organization that exists and is articulating like Sacred Earth Foundation is and White Eagle Memorial Preserve is a permission. It's like, oh, this is how we, this is how we practice this, and so there's a whole lot of permission that just comes with that. And often, uh, you know, a family member will have heard about natural burial or will have found us, and then need to try to explain this to the rest of the family and friends and community of like, we want to, we want to bury this person like like so and some kind of by proxy giving giving an entire family um, a wider scope to work within Um, and that in part it's a permission but it's also this invitation it's like and I, I will say often when it comes to the time to do the the closing of the grave, we'll bring the shovels out and say, you know, if it's two shovels of earth, you know, if it's a symbolic thing for you, that's lovely. If it's 37 shovels and it's a, like, duty thing, great. You know, you are welcome at whatever level you're comfortable engaging. Um, and 
many times I'm having conversations with whoever the point person is, and they're like, I don't know. You know, I'm, a- I'm asking, do you think your family will want to participate? And trying to get a sense of if we need how much of our crew we need to bring kind of the home crew to support. Because you don't have to. You can, you know, we, we can help, we can do the closing of the grave. Um, I just see so often that people start kind of hesitantly and then they just really need to engage fully. Hmm. And and that's not something that I can necessarily, you know, explain with words ahead of time. I just sort of – it's a feeling, a feeling into. Um, so there is – and I, I mean, I think that's true with so many things, just creatively, like the, this, this notion of like support and, and protecting somebody when they're in a growth process. Like how do you – how do you do that? How do you empower and lift someone up without like demanding – you're going to learn how to like perform songs in public like but how do you just create little spaces where somebody has an experience where they play a song that they've learned and it goes well and it feels good and like i just i see that in the creative spectrum so often of like we just gently hold each other and hold space for people to grow into themselves and that's a strange thing to say about kind of death and dying work, but I think that's also true. I think people who've helped support a loved one in their dying process, whether that's at home, especially with with home deaths, um, it really cracks people hmm. open in in a way that they'd I mean, and that's not all that's not all beautiful and positive. It can be really, really challenging and hard too, but it's like how do we grow? Like what what are the human growth potentialities mm. and I feel like there's a whole really rich world in in death and dying that we have kind of sh- shuttered away you know or given to professionals to to take care of mm-hmm. and sometimes that's incredibly appropriate and exactly what needs to happen but it's not the only thing that can happen yeah yeah, I mean, I, I have to say I haven't really – it is something I try to not think about. And I have not explored, you know, what other cultures do or even what, like, tribal communities in Washington do in regards to burial or if it's more dictated by religious tradition. There's a book that just came out recently called Corpse Care. There's a couple of books that I have not yet written, read through enough to be able to recommend or speak very – informedly about yeah. but um i'll give i'll give you some yeah i'll some have kind of some resources later. yeah that's great um but that one very much looks at the, the history of um caring for the dead um in the u.s in particular kind of um what the puritan uh the puritans were coming in with what how those practices were um, in our colonization of the United States, like how there, there's some really tragic and hard stuff with like native populations and uh, colonizers. And I think there's a lot of good reasons for our kind of schismed perspective on death and, and death care. But I don't think we have to be stuck there. Hmm. So this this experience for me, because I didn't come to this work with a 
whole lot of experience in in death and dying or um like I think I uh I would say that my my supporting skills came from training in body work and massage therapy and being comfortable with um emotional charge and kind of a literacy with with what what the emotional spectrum can look like and be like and feel like for people and then working uh working for a natural foods co-op which has some strange parallels in, mm-hmm. in the like introducing to a larger culture um, some of these like real re- reclaiming tenants of like you can grow your own food, you can cook your own food, you can buy food from farmers who are really directly connected with land very near to you. Like this just like reattaching Mm. Or reconnecting to some tenants that we've just—it's not drifted. We've been disconnected from because of years of uh, institutionalization and capitalism and all those good, not yeah. good, <laughs> all those large-scale yeah. forces, all the large-scale forces. So how to? reconnect on the human scale. Well, I'm curious because, you know, one of the things behind this podcast and things that I've been writing lately is just the idea of ecological grief, like trying to figure out what that really is. What's my personal experience? What's our collective experience? And, you know, I know I don't actually know a lot about just the the grief world in general and not only the sort of healing and psychology around it, but, um, you know, even what it is and how do you identify it in your life. And, and so I'm curious, this work that you're doing with death and dying and, you know, not only being around grieving people, but probably having that experience with them, because it sounds like it's pretty, it's pretty intense. How is that? I mean, is it in conversation with ecological grief through, you know, being a natural burial ground or is there, an, is there are there connections there for you? I think that's a really actually complex question. And the short answer is yes, there are so many connections. And there's, we've been speaking or I've been speaking about this designated 20 acres of land that we are calling, that is now a bur- used for burial as a real balm for people who are in grief, like the wildness of that being and the, like, your feet being on earth and not, you know, in a kind of um, artificialized environment. And in a larger sense, like Sacred Earth Foundation is now stewarding about 1,200 acres of land and actively trying to uh, protect more as we go because uh, Rock Creek watershed is is – fairly intact and wanting to keep it that way and that's its own like whole aspect of this organization's work Um, and really looking at conservation for the long run and how do you fundraise for that and how do you engage people theoretically and like why we need to be stewarding this land and 
and all of the all of the nonprofitiness of it, which is really valid, good work in and of itself. Um, but we're also doing firewise forestry out there, and um, when you're talking about ecological grief, like the the drought in the West and the impacts that that has had both on the severity of wildfire seasons. And I spoke earlier about how this land loves and needs fire, but it needs it in a very different way than we're seeing with the just rampage of Mm. wildfires. And we are in like a state of consistent attention and alert all summer long around the danger of fire and um, and with that the danger of logging during the summer which can increase fire risk to to um, uncomfortable degree Mm -hmm. and at the same time we have been practicing fire wise forestry in the wintertime some contracts with DNR for the last 10 years I would say to do limbing and thinning and um, removal of some underbrush we've got a lot of antelope bitterbrush which is a native but is also very tinder-y and and looking at that forestry work as essential and also you know, do we begin to look at prescribed burning and and part of what we're noticing and part of where my ecological grief is coming from on with that land in particular is the pine beetle, pine beetle infestations and really seeing you know every year more and more mm. of these trees that uh, have been uh, have been hit with pine beetles and then woodpeckers and then, you know, just it's a very slow scale. Um, but the first five years that I was there, I did not see this. And then potentially my eye was just not trained, but it's like it's it feels like it's coming closer. It's and like it's, hollowing out the trees, yeah. really. Yeah. Yeah. And there's, you know, there are things we can do to like to mitigate that. But that's just that is underway. That is and so like a lot of – I mean I'm, I live part-time on the west side also in places that are really prone, prone to flooding and, and so it's similar feeling internally of like it's, it's happening and can do – what can we do? Mm-hmm. Like want to, the, the need to want to do something which for me is a really interesting aspect of grief that I – I hope we learn how to talk about more Um, because it is a need. Like when you hear that someone you love has lost someone they love deeply, like just wish there was something you could do and looking for, looking for the right words to say there really are. I don't know that there are right words in case of raw, rough, like loss. And there are definitely on the larger, like the, the things that need to happen are such large-scale changes in our uh, global way of being on this planet that it can be really demoralizing. And use that, but there is that need of like to want to be able to do something about it. Mm-hmm. And I, my sense is that that's very deeply entwined in the grieving process in general. You know, and. I think there's the term is use like useful grieving. I'm not quite sure, but there it is. This like uh, it can 
a family member may need to make like to make a casket is like an act of love and of service that they can do. And they may not ever be able to put words around the pain or the emotion that they're feeling, but they can they can make this beautiful box. You know, that sort of um, being of use mm-hmm. thing, which I I just tend to recognize also when it comes to land. Like how do you – one, how do you receive – How do you learn to deepen and receive solace from land personally? Because I feel like that is definitely a practice, you know, forest bathing and people Mm -hmm. going, going out and hiking and and being in, being in the natural world as a way of continuing to stay grounded in this uh, civilized (laughs) world. I might, I was not using air quotes. I was just grasping at the air. (laughs) like that. I knew. I got yeah. it. <laughs> yeah, but then there's also this like, there's a there's a reciprocity piece. Mm. It's that's one side of of the picture, and then this other side is this how how do you be of service to the land? And uh, yeah, I feel like that's a piece that we're culturally grappling with. Thank you for listening to Her Deepest Ecologies, the podcast. For more information on our guests, please visit the Substack page for photos, complete bios, links mentioned in our conversation, and more. These interviews were recorded at Jack Straw Cultural Center in Seattle, Washington. Thanks to sound engineer Ayesha for all of her help. Episodes were edited at my farm in the Skagit Valley, Harmony Fields.